Hi and welcome to the Msingi Talks podcast, a podcast hosted by Msingi Trust. This podcast ventures deeper into issues of faith, advocacy, activism, and makes connections between these worlds. Psalms 89.14 states that justice and righteousness are the foundation of God's throne. And here we unpack how the church, as the body of Christ and institution, can faithfully embody justice and righteousness in both word and deed. Karibuni and let's do justice. Everybody and welcome to this episode of Msingi Talks, um, a podcast hosted by Msingi Trust. And I am so very excited. I think um, I always say that I'm very excited about hosting a particular <laughs> guest, but I really am because all the people who I've hosted so far are friends, are family, are people whom I look up to in terms of the work that they are doing. And today we have my sister uh, Sandra Van Opsel and I am very excited to host you yeah and we'll be talking about I think justice worship music pursuit of it all of that so welcome Sandra thanks for having me I'm excited to be here with you and to see your face and to be a part of the awesome work that you're doing yeah, thank you. And, and this is not the first time we're in contact. We met <laughs> in 2018 at the Justice Conference. Yes, in South Africa. Yes, in <laughs> South Africa, in Cape Town. And it feels like, feels like years ago because of all that's been happening. The world has changed so much. It's, it's crazy. It's like all the people, the sharing, the touching, the hugging, the whipping together. That's something that's, that won't happen for a bit now. How, do, how are you responding to the lack of hugs, the lack of touching, the lack of community with the pandemic? Yeah, so oh my gosh, it's such a good question. Um, but yes, it's been a long, it feels like a long, long time ago when I think about uh, when we met and um, I, was hoping to come see you this past April, so a year ago this month. Um, oh, and it, it reminds me, it actually makes me feel uh, the kind of sadness that I feel when I can't greet people or um, say hello to people. So it was a year, um, a year time that, that passed between the, between the, uh, the last time I hugged my mom and um, my kids were able to hug their grandmother. Um, and so we, once, we, once we were vaccinated, um, we were able to like see them in, not outside, not from far away and give them a hug, still with masks on just because you never know. Um, but it, it, it's amazing how you don't know what's missing until you experience it again. So I think part of it is we, we become accustomed to it. Like, it's just the way it is. So we become accustomed to greeting in other ways, which, you know, people greet in all over the world in very different ways. Um, but for me, coming from a culture that is very demonstrative, you know, like a lot of affection in Latina culture, a lot of um, not just warm words, but um, physical contact and closeness when you talk and, 
you know, yeah. constantly touching someone as you're telling a story, all those things that we do in, in, within our cultural norms um, in, my, in our family, and then also in our church that's primarily Latina and African-American. And there's just so much physical affection that, you know, you, it, it, it was very, very felt for me. Um, and I think, honestly, I think some of it's just presence. Yeah. Carol. So it's like just presence with each other and like feeling like the sensing someone else's physical presence with you. Um, so we were able to go to church for the first time, um, you know, following protocol in small numbers with all the, you know, all the things. Um, but we were able to go to church on Palm Sunday for the first time. And even though I was like very far away from other people in this, in the space, I still could feel their presence and sense their presence um, in worship, which was so different, you know, yeah. than, the, than the 12 months before. So yes, I'm, I'm doing okay, but it, I didn't think I, I didn't think it made a difference until I was able to be present with other people again. And then I realized, oh, I was my, my, my whole body was like, and personhood was longing for presence with other people. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you realize that flesh, there's a whole thing of embodiment and being together and communion and, and belonging to one another in common space that is sacred, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And profound and mysterious, you know, like, I don't know what it is. So I told my husband afterwards, I said, you know, I felt like I was a body that was like, I didn't know I felt this way, but now in, in reflecting back, I felt like I was a body that was like attached to, like intubated and attached to a bunch of machinery, but not really present. And then someone came in and pulled all those things out and like kind of re revived or restarted my heart. And I was like fully in my body again after that experience. Yeah. And I said, I don't know what it was. It wasn't anything special. It was just, you know, like just a church service we've been having online, similar but something happened in, in the practice of presence and embodiment with one another that was pretty profound for me, actually, um, that, that week. Um, yeah, and I said, I don't know what it is because it feels a little bit mysterious, but there's something in that. And I'm glad that our church observed all the you know, CDC protocols. I'm glad they paid attention because in our community, COVID was incredibly, we had disproportionate rates. Um, but I, I was so glad to be back. Yeah. I, I think for me, the one thing I can't, I'm longing for, um, we normally have this like Friday evening worship events because I, I once a month in various churches, I'm longing for that, like two, three hours of an interrupted singing in community and worshiping God in community and just in proximity with each other because I think for me there's something about that with other people I, I, I I've been how doing house church for three actually more than three years now and so for me now I'm used to the small groups in churches but it's the bigger worship events bigger uh protests or meetings with people be the the trainings with pastors and community leaders for me that's what I long for mm. yeah that's what my soul longs for yeah for so sure 
Yeah, so I'm like, we've started uh, talking and we have not uh, fully introduced <laughs> with all your titles. <laughs> Could you please tell my friends who are listening to us who Sandra is? Yeah, so I'm the daughter of two immigrants that, um, that went from Latin America to the U.S., um, uh, and I was born and raised in in Chicago, and I am married. Uh, I have two little six-year-olds. Um, I'm a pastor. I'm a local activist and community um, leader and uh, an author in the area of uh, the intersection of faith and justice. And so um, what does that look like for us to be people who are actually living in a way that that, that embodies the renewal of all things um, as people of faith. And so, so I, I do a lot of my work within, you know, one block radius of my house, even before the pandemic, um, unless I'm on a plane going somewhere across the country or around the world, sharing the things that are happening here. But I really believe um, my, my, my national ministry and my teaching ministry comes from a rootedness in my local community and what it means to be a neighbor here. So that's a little bit of who I am. I, I have some degrees, I have some schooling, I have written some books, um, but I think uh, the most important things to know are that um, my family experience as the daughter of immigrants has profoundly shaped how I view the world. Um, and that my experience and commitment to being a neighbor is what um is foundational to the ministry that I do so yeah um and so Sandra if you if I was to ask you what in your work in your life in your family life in your day-to-day -day experience if you could share something that brings you joy and something that brings you sorrow okay um, well, I'll start with my, uh, my joy thing. So yesterday, um, well, not yesterday, two days ago was my birthday. And, um, and so I was able to spend the whole morning on phone calls uh, with women of color um, who are kind of um, looking for ways to find their voice and elevating their, their um, leadership. And I was on the phone with um, a with a woman of color who works in a predominantly white um, majority mega church experience. And so I was doing some kind of uh, like helping people understand one another all morning I was on calls and I was like, this is what I like to do. I love, I love to work on behalf of and yeah. with and for mm -hmm. um, black indigenous Asian and Latino women in their journey towards their leadership. I just love that. Anything I could do to do. And so someone was like, you worked on your birthday. I was like, I loved it. I loved my morning. Like I, I everything about it was fantastic. Um, so the things that bring me joy um, is the leadership, the presence of um, the voices of women of color who are doing fantastic things in the world because they love Jesus. And they want to see the world be different. So that's what I love doing. That's what's bringing me joy. Mm -hmm. Oh my gosh, what's bringing me sorrow, aside from the state of the American church in general, um, I think, uh, you know, this week that we find ourselves in, um, just all of the death, you know, I mm -hmm. mean, whether it's related to 
health crisis or um, refugee crisis or you know the need for gun control um, the way that uh, policing is enacted in our country there's just so much death um, yeah. and I can't keep up with the kinds of conversations I have to have with my kids on what's mm -hmm. happening in the world like I can't keep up with like how do I talk to them about what just happened and they see it because it's in our neighborhood it's in our city it's on the news um and yeah so I think it it's just it's exhausting and it's uh it can be paralyzing I think if you if you let it yeah. uh because there's just so much of it mm -hmm. yeah so um, as we are talking about it, I, I'm wondering what, what brings you relief? Are there spaces that uh, also brings you a sense of like resting? How do you, what, what in the area of your work do you do to find some sense of relief? And uh, yeah. Oh, well, first of all, I think um, congregating and neighboring well is, is critical to sustainability. Like just like enjoying the place that you live in, you know, like, like liking your neighbors. I mean, at a very basic level, like enjoying the community you live in, enjoying the people that you're with, making sure that you um, develop a both a virtual and a, and a local community that um, that looks after you, that tells you when you're not on a good path, that checks in on you, that drops off a meal for you, you know, um, that invites you to to take a walk or do some exercise alongside of them. So I think those are the things that um, that are sustain me. I, I remember once talking to a, a young person who had moved into our neighborhood, and like every time they talked about it, it was like it seems so awful, you know, like, oh gosh, you know, it's like the violence and like the poverty and just like, and so in Chicago, I'll just so you all know that in the winter time here, it gets very, very ugly. Like it's just concrete and gray and like black snow. It's really gross. Like in the January, February, March, it, it, it just, yeah. it's very, very not beautiful. Um, and so, especially during those months and nobody goes outside, so you don't see anyone. So I think, especially during those months, you know, we, we struggle, uh, mm -hmm. but this person was sharing that. And I turned to the person, and I said, if you don't like it here, you can go. Mm, yeah. Like if you don't see anything beautiful here, if all you can see is the injustice and the poverty and the pain and, and, you know, the, the need to change things and, uh, the cracks in the sidewalks and whatever else is, you know, you, you know, here that we, that we have the lack of parks and all those things, if that's all you can see, mm -hmm. then we don't need you here. Mm. You know, um, if you're here though, because you, you see beauty in the community and, and you are inspired by the relationships that, that grandparents and parents have with their children and the way that people look out for each other. And if, if you, if you, um, if you love us and you see beauty in us, and you're able to hold beauty and brokenness at the same time, then, then like welcome to the journey. But if all you see is like 
you know, gosh, you just God's called me to this like really hard like commitment of being here among the poor. You know, like if that's your attitude, like I was like, just go. Yeah. <laughs> and, I think, and I think Sandra, that that for me is my problem with missionaries, because um, when missionaries are in quote unquote Africa, they are constantly telling the story of how horrible it is, you know? And I think there's never been a more, like I find what you're saying very helpful that really if it's all bad, if you can't see the the beauty in this, in the, because there's always beauty, there's always beauty somewhere. There's always. Beauty somewhere. There's always beauty to be seen. And so if you can't see beauty in the work that you're doing, then go. Yeah, so I think I shocked them because I think most yeah, people are used to hearing. Shocking. That's really shocking because it's also, because no one is prepared to be told, then go. Because maybe they are waiting for you to say, no, it's beautiful. Like for, for you to affirm the beauty of your of your area but then it's not up to you to defend your area because yeah yeah and i think too like i've seen that happen in um and it's not healthy carol it's not healthy for someone to be somewhere where they can't see god's presence where they can't see god's image where they can't see beauty and um and they can't have joy in the journey of justice if, if, if they're not if we're not in that space and it's not healthy for us all, any of us, you know, um, and and I think um, I've, I've been concerned, for example, for couples, let's say there's a, a couple that moves in and one of the partners is like, just they're not happy at the church or they're not happy in the space. And, you know, that maybe they even struggle with some depression and anxiety. I'm like, you need to move your spouse out of here. You need to get your partner out of here because this is not helpful for them. Yeah. It, it, you know, I think we, we need to be able to be in community and in proximity and neighboring and doing work and protesting alongside of and all those things, worshiping with um, a community that we can see both the brokenness and the beauty. And that goes also for spaces that look very beautiful because they're manicured and they're taken care of and there's wealth and money and all the while there's all this brokenness and evil underneath all of that that no one can see so I think um, the ability for us to um, to truly enjoy yeah where God has called us I think that is the key to sustainability do you love the space God has called you oh my gosh yes I feel like we're deviating from like because I want to to dig a bit deeper in this because uh, and I love I love this God deviations because a lot of us in the activist activism space carry struggle very strongly and so you don't get to enjoy life you don't get to you're guilty for having for going to the coffee shop and just enjoying a bite, you know. You're guilty for taking a trip, uh, taking a day off, two days off, a week off. Yeah, and it's not sustainable. It's not. It's it's not godly even. No, it's not, and it's it, it doesn't model good things for the people around you either. And I think 
communities that, um, and I think that's why I, I really hold on to like the practices of my ancestors, the practices of our abuelas, of our grandmothers and of our, um, our communal worship and our communal walk with God um, historically needs to be considered even for us as you know, younger, I'm not young, but younger activists or younger um, people in the fight, because we look, we look at like, wow, how is that person able to do this into their 90s, you know? So an example, let me give you an example. This week, we had a tr very, very tragic um, um, uh, shooting uh, of Adam Toledo in, in, in Chicago, it was in the next neighborhood over. Um, and Adam Toledo was a 13 year old, um, boy in the neighborhood that was um, fatally shot by police. Mm. Um, and so there was a march that happened in, in our in a neighborhood north of us. And that march was conducted by, it was, it was organized by um, youth activists, but a lot of the people there were not, they're not, they weren't black, they weren't brown, they were white. Um, they were affluent, you know, they had money and resources. They were, gen they were the ones that gentrified the neighborhood north of us basically. Mm -hmm. And so we're at this event and, and the, the tone of the event didn't feel at all like the community. It felt like something else. Like there was like just a lot of anger and rage, which I totally understand, but there wasn't any beauty or joy alongside of that. And so it felt a certain way. And I was glad to be there. I always, I think it's important to submit yourself to local activists and kind of just participate and learn. And, and, and so I was there with my husband, but I was so glad I didn't bring my kids because I didn't want that kind of environment for them. I didn't like it. It was, it didn't feel Latina. It didn't feel like, like their family would have, like, I just, it didn't feel right. So then two days later, we went to um, a march in the neighborhood that started in the alley where he was shot. Mm. And there was a massive mural there. Um, and um, there were mariachis. If you don't know what a mariachi is, it's a, it's a Mexican folk music, like with the big hats and all that. So uh, okay. lots of um, string instruments. So there was a mariachi band and there was um, native Aztec dancing from like, you know, the, the indigenous um, peoples of, of, of Mexico. And there were youth, uh, youth speakers and spoken word artists and families were there like from grandmother to grandchildren. And there was so much um, beauty, color, lots of color, so much color and beauty yeah. and music and dancing. And um, everyone had a flower. Uh, we all had flowers, uh, carnations that we carried with us in the march all the way around until we laid it down at the, in the alley at the fence where he was shot. And everything about that felt like our grandmothers taught us to be. I don't know if that makes sense, but like speak your truth to power, like be brave, be courageous, speak up, make change, um, but do it together and do it with gozo, do it with joy, do it with, I don't know. Um, yeah, so it just felt so different and I, I, rem I went home and I thought like, this is why it's important for people from the community to be centered in the struggle for justice because there's something mm -hmm. about the way that we do, um, there's something about the way that we do it that is holding together our deep, deep conviction that somehow God will work this out even mm -hmm. though we have absolutely no idea how. Mm -hmm. And that like hope and lament carried together 
um, in that march was profound and powerful. And I was so glad that I brought my kids there. Mm, that's beautiful. And um, in mentioning your 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 grandmothers, your your family. Was that how you started your journey to justice? How did you find yourself in the faith and justice world? Um, okay, so yeah, I, I mean, I my parents always taught us to speak up when something's wrong, you know. <laughs> so I think uh, my father's from Argentina. So, um, you know, for those of you that are listening, if you don't know, Che Guevara comes from Argentina, um, you know, the revolutionary. So, yeah. Yeah. So um, my husband calls me little Che. He's like, <laughs> okay, Che. Um, but so I think there is, you know, coming, living in, a, in the U.S., but having parents from a different country, you just, you interpret news differently because they're like, that's not how it is. This is really how it is. Or that's an Americanized version of the story. Um, and I used to think my father is like, he's such a conspiracy theorist. He's always like, you know, um, but now that I look back, I realize like everything he talked about was true. Like the North American Free Trade Act, the NAFTA Act that we enacted in the 80s and 90s really impacted trade and vulnerability and poverty in Mexico very deeply. Um, and he was right. The news only told the story from, from a white affluent perspective. And he was right that capitalism was the god of the americas over any other religion or expression of faith and so i think part of it was family upbringing um and then the other so i, I kind of i knew there was wrong and right i remember when i was eight years old i wrote a letter to the doll makers that make um barbie you know the mattel company and i was like dear mattel you know none of your dolls look like me um this was like that's how old I am this was like wow. 70s 80s early 80s um and um yeah and so I think I had a sense of like when something is wrong you raise your voice and you say something and you make a change mm -hmm. um it connected with me with my faith through the scriptures um as a college student and I, as I was learning how to study scripture for myself like not just have a pastor or a priest tell me what what um, scripture said, but like for me to actually explore it. So I was reading, you know, through Luke and I was reading through Isaiah and I was reading through the scriptures and I found out, oh my gosh, the Bible actually has a lot to say about God's heart for justice. Why was this missing from my upbringing um, in the yeah. church? And so I began to, to make those connections and, um, and to journey through the scriptures. So for me, a journey to justice came through a lens of biblical justice. So therefore um, it's rooted in and continues to be rooted in my study of scripture in not only that, that we should do justice but also how you pursue justice. So, yeah. Do you know, um, Sandra, what keeps, what keeps coming to my mind as, you, as you're telling me this is the description of your second match about, um, having the mariachi band having flowers but still holding grief you know and i think the journey of justice is that mm -hmm. is is to match is to hold flowers to have the the band playing but to know that you you're matching because a life has been 
has been snuffed out and we are saying, no, it is not okay. And so, but then for you, I feel like you take it a bit further, further than many of us do and add worship to it. So when and how did you make that connection? Because for many of us activists, we, we've, we don't make that connection. What brought you to that connection of justice and worship? And, and we, when we say worship, it means the song, Sunday music, and all that, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, oh my gosh. Um, it, you know, the book of Amos did that for me so profoundly. I was studying Amos with um, students in the city. I was running a program where we were partnering with churches that were doing transformational uh, like um, asset-based community development and transformational and restorative justice in the communities they were in. And we were studying like, you know, verse by verse, inductive manuscript study, like from cover to cover, Amos 1 to the end. Um, and, um, and for me, that was such a joy because I actually had studied music. I studied music in college. That's what I was going to be a famous singer. And so I knew that the arts and creativity had the power to unlock imagination. Mm -hmm. uh, that sometimes as a younger girl, when I would stand up in my very small church and you know sing a song, um, that people could be brought to tears and be moved to action through music. That 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 mural that I saw in that alley, you know, um, with the silhouette of the young boy that was murdered, with the wings uh, it, and and all the flowers. There was something about the visual of that um, that move me to empathy and to um to want to take action and so i i think i always knew that the practice of creating art and standing in um in in an expression of art could could unlock something very mysterious in people and so um not just loving god with our intellect um but really tapping into our our personhood, our, 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 our gut, you know, our soul, our feelings. And then in, in particularly majority expressions of worship around the world, really your body as well. So it's an embodied practice when you sing and you dance and you um, make eye contact with the people around you that you're saying we are professing with our, we are professing with our presence, with our embodied act of worship that, that, um, that there is no God like our God, mm. that God walks with us, that in our pain, God is there. Um, and so um, I think for me, the book of Amos unlocked the difference between standing together and singing songs and saying things with your mouth and professing things um, and then actually living into a life that reflected that was true. Um, so I would say for me, the connection came through the book, through a biblical study of the book of Amos. Um, and personally, the connection came through like how I saw the practice of worship and creativity unlock the imagination of others. So for example, um, and that's if you're doing, you know, like good and helpful worship, but if you're doing like, if you're just singing about yourself all the time and just being a narcissist, then that's obviously not gonna lead to anything. But I think if we're together singing something, 
about mm -hmm. us made in God's image, about us being a healing balm to the world, about our presence in the world, then I think it's easy then to say, now go and do likewise. Now go and live in such a way that centers um, those who are vulnerable and marginalized. Um, and so I think that that for me is the connection. But for me, I mean, Amos makes it very plain. You, you know, without justice, there is no worship. Like whatever you're doing with your mouth or your hands or your instruments or your bodies, if you don't live a life that seeks good and seeks God and repents from evil and overthrows evil, then you don't have a life of worship. You have a life of singing. Yeah. Um, and on the flip side, if you're pursuing justice and you're enacting justice, um, but you're doing so apart from a connection with God, then first of all, it's not sustainable. And secondly, uh, many, many times the way in which we pursue justice doesn't reflect the, the, the smell or the tone or the sound of our creator. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think both of those are true. Um, and in the mission of worship was the first time I wrote about that. I think it's like two pages long. It's so short. Like the book's only 40 or 50 pages, but that section was only two pages. And I think for me, it did something of like, that's true. Like, why are we all getting together and like doing quiet times and listening to sermons and, you know, having Bible studies together. And then all we do is live for ourselves. Like, what is this? This is not church. This is not God. Um, and at the same time, I would go into activist spaces and be like, like, I'm sure they're going to, I'm positive they're going to do good. Yeah. Positive. How in the world do you expect to overthrow powers and principalities of evil in your own strength, y'all? Like in your own strength. <laughs> yeah, man. Yeah. Sandra, you speak to, to, to my heart in such a profound way because I find myself in those in those two separate spaces. I find myself in the deeply activist spaces and many who who are who have run away from the church or there's an English word for that. What's the English word for deserted or not deserted? They've just said go away church. I, th I think there's a better English word for that. And it's because a lot of times they, and then I'm also in the faith spaces where they don't see, understand why activism is happening. And so actually what Msingi exists to do is to bring those two spaces together because we need, we need each other. Um, social justice without uh, in my view that social justice without faith is is weakened and faith without social justice is weakened and because they are one yeah i mean i agree and and i, and I would say even even maybe even stronger mm -hmm. that faith without without lived justice is really just not faith at all. I mean, mm -hmm. it's a it's a form of like self-help. I don't mm -hmm. know, like, you know, like become your best person, uh, live your purpose-driven, whatever, you know, like 
um, all the like, I, I mean, just, and I'm so sorry, I really have to apologize that Americans have exported so much garbage theology around the world. Like it's just garbage, it's trash. Um, but I go to bookshelves, like I go to, you know, bookstores or like, you know, online virtual bookstores, you know, and I see like the top 10, you know, Christian, you know, books and you go to like, even overseas, like to, I, I used to go to like, whenever I'd visit, I would go to the church's bookstore and see like, what do they have, you know, translated into whatever language. And it's like, really, you have, that's who you're going to listen to over here. Like, yes, that's who you want to listen to. Okay. Um, and I, I feel like it's it's violence against the global church to export a theology of narcissism. Um, and so, and it's not what the church was ever intended to be. It's not what the church can be. Um, and it's certainly why so many um, people under the age of 30, you know, and younger are just saying the church is not for me. Like yeah. I, I'm abandoning this. I don't wanna be a part of it. I don't wanna walk into here because not only because you're hypocrites which, and you're not relevant, but also because you literally are working against justice. Mm. In our country, in the US, you're literally voting, the white evangelical churches voting for the systems that enact pain on other, on peoples of color. Um, yeah. And even in progressive spaces, you talk really well, but then you operate out of your own elitism and your own um, classism. And so you want to help us, but you don't want to actually listen to us. Mm -hmm. um, so, so yeah, I think, um, I think it's true. And I, I just think there's more, Carol. I think there's more, I, I like, I read scripture and I, I uh, read stories about the early church and I see the church globally and I'm like, oh my gosh, we could be so much more. We could, and <laughs> we could be so much more. Msingi is a Swahili word meaning foundation. Our name and mandate comes from Psalms 89.14. We host engaging conversations on faith, social justice, and advocacy across all our social media platforms. We also offer training and consultancy services to help you navigate the world of social justice and faith. To engage with us, visit our website www.msingitrust.org Follow us on all our social media handles at Trust or email us on info at msingitrust.org I want to, con to connect two conversations here because I want to ask you about if there's a universal song that we could sing together but also I want to ask you about the songs that God that God hates, you know, because uh, as we are connecting the 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 macro and the the Amos conversation, and that comes from Amos five. Could you you could you read it? Yeah, um, Amos five twenty one says, um, "I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me." Even though you bring me burnt offering and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs, but I will not listen to the music of your harps, but let justice roll like a river, righteousness like a never failing stream. It's 21 through 24. Yeah. And it comes, it comes after in, in Amos 5.14, where it's this repetition that God keeps telling God's people like seek good, 
not evil, that you may live, hate yeah. evil, love good, maintain justice. So it, it's a it's a song God has already been singing over them. Mm-hmm. And so if you looked at our songs and the songs that we're singing, would you say God is, what would you say about them? Um, well, I would say that the songs that we sing come from the context that we live in. Mm-hmm. So um, I, when I saw that question, I was like, I don't know if there's like a song I can think of that God hates or God likes or, you know, like, but what uh, the first thing that came to mind was our songs are written out of context. Mm-hmm. And so what I do think God hates, and I've been very clear about this historically, what I do think God hates is that um, we have made worship into an industry that um, is fueled by our consumerism of ideas of faith that make us happy. Mm. So we allow for, you know, th- three to four um, musical, you know, kind of worship houses, let's call it that worship houses or musical houses to write our theology and our lyrics and our songs. And then we export them all over the world, you know, from Australia, from the UK, from California or North Carolina, from wherever, you know, we we export them all over the world. Um, And they're not intended, it's not intended to center the things that God centers. It's a, they're intended to center yourself. Hmm. So I, I think that God hates songs in which we are centered. Mm. The reason I think God hates songs in which we are centered is not because he, because God doesn't love us, but because when we center ourselves, we can never get to wholeness, healing, righteousness, deliverance, and justice. Mm. Um, um, And so I think songs that center God, that center our creator, that center our sustainer, um, songs that center um, the ones who are most marginalized, songs that lead to an imagination about the world we could live in, um, songs that are rooted in biblical ideas of um, renewal, deliverance, liberation, and healing, um, songs songs that are written by people um, who most experience that the, the, the struggle of living between what we're promised and what we're actually living in, um, you know, the here but not yet. Um, I think those are songs that God delights in, songs that express our true emotions, like allow us to, you know, grieve and scream and cry. Um, and so I, I'm very thankful for movements of worship uh, leaders and and musicians and uh, theologians and activists that are writing their own music, um, yeah. that are bringing forth like a, a refrain, like for example, a song I posted a few weeks, a couple weeks ago from um, from the folks over at Common Hymnal, like just a refrain from the Psalms of how long, you know, how much longer, how much longer, because it helps me come to God and say, like, I am confident that in the end you, you win. I'm, I know that. And I might not see that this side of, you know, the new heaven and the new earth, but, but really God, really, you know, (laughs) how much longer, how long will it take? And I think we, I was with you 
I was with you in at the Justice Conference when one of the most profound worship sessions uh, happened when um, Lusanda and uh, Sis Auntie Mina were were doing that worship session, and you know which session I'm talking about. And for me, we we just come from a very very painful and very powerful session. But then we didn't immediately resolve the moment. You know, we didn't immediately start a happy clappy song. We started crying, we started uh, lament. We, we were in pain and we sought for justice. There was, um, it was the song of freedom. And so if you would look back to that moment and maybe express what that moment meant for you at that at the justice conference, but also speak about the importance of the of the genre of lament in our worship and in our in our songs. What's the power and purpose of lament? And how do we learn to do it? How do we learn to do that? How do we learn to write on also write new songs when um, when when we have already trained ourselves to like that the 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 nice worship music is the hill song or the Bethel one? How do we learn to write new songs? And then how do we incorporate lament? And how do we incorporate daily struggle in the songs we sing and write? I feel like I've asked five questions. <laughs> Yeah, they're all good questions, though. So let me see if I can. Um, no, I mean, it's really curious asking questions about how, how do we do this? Like, how, how do we come before God? And why is it important for us to come before God? Honestly, you know, I think the other day I was in a prayer meeting. Let me say this. The other day I was in a prayer meeting um, about the murders that were happening in our city and, and across our world. And I, I noticed a real strong generational disconnect between, <laughs> between those who are older in the meeting and those who were younger in the meeting and those who are connected to younger people in the meeting. And that's how I was listening to the prayers, um, which are part of our worship, you know, like the spoken prayers. As I was listening to the prayers, I was realizing like, oh, these are all people that want to like, they're like trying to kind of front or put forth or accentuate God's sovereignty, you know, Colossians 1, God is over all things and through all things and in Christ, all things are held together, you know, that kind of, which is true, it's absolutely true. Um, um, and then we have these younger folks who are just like, I mean, just the words they would use to describe them are rage and anger. And I was like, of course they're angry. Of course they're angry yeah. why would a 13 year old have to write a letter to their best friend and put it up on a fence um to say goodbye to them because of what has happened so I, I said I just read Psalm I just read Psalm 13 so I'll read a piece of it to you and I think it it, it 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 does what if we just took the things that were actually in scripture and read them you know how long Lord mm. you forget us forever how long will you hide your face from us and how long what must we wrestle with our thoughts and day after day have sorrow in our hearts and how long will our enemies triumph over us look on us and answer lord our god give light to our eyes 
or we will sleep in death and our enemy will say, I have overcome him. And our foes will say, we'll rejoice when we fall. But I trust in your unfailing love. We trust in you and our heart rejoices in your salvation. And we will sing the Lord's praise for God has been good to us. What if we just put that song to music and we gave the people in our communities the opportunity to say, look at us, God, mm. look. Mm. Do you not see mm -hmm. how long? This is a biblical model of coming before God. Mm -hmm. And so as long as we write songs that, and, and definitely like you could have a moment like this in a spoken word or a read scripture or a sung song um, or a video, however you want to produce it, you know, and then afterwards you can sing a song that says God is a way maker. Hmm. he sustained I mean that's the song that all the immigrants sing as they cross over our river on the south of our border hmm. Hmm. he's the the light in the darkness our God that's right. who you are that's a song they're singing as they're traveling with their children on these trains you know hmm. and so it's okay to communicate that we trust God it's even even if we don't feel it that we're saying it and communicating it but if you don't let people go through like an honest encounter with God, then how are they supposed to face how bad things really are? And, you know, um, I think for me profoundly, Emmanuel Katangale's work um, in looking at um, the model of Jeremiah and the, and the lament, the practice of lament in the African church and the East African church, especially um, mm -hmm. looking at the, uh, the, the way, the way towards healing and reconciliation through um, through and, and beyond and after the genocide and how people um, were able to just come honestly um, in their worship and say lament is the practice of, you know, he says the lament is the practice of, of, of seeing mm. and of naming and of standing in pain, not yeah. fixing it, not covering it, not pretending mm. it's not there. So yeah. how do we as activists and aunties and parents and church leaders and worship artists, how do we create spaces where people can name, where people can see and name and stand in pain without trying to fix something for someone? Um, and to really exercise empathy and, and, and validation and say, I, I, it's really that bad. And, and I do believe that folks of color, um, are the global, the church in the global South, we have the ability and the practice of holding that. It's really that bad. Like it, it, it sucks, you know, it shouldn't happen. And at the same time, that doesn't negate God's mm -hmm. power or God's glory or God's promise. Um, and you don't have to diminish either one of those. You actually can accentuate both of them to the fullness. Mm -hmm. This is violence against our bodies. Yeah. White supremacy is violence against our bodies. Mm -hmm. God, how long? Where are you and don't you see? Yeah. And I think that's what allows us to go to those protests. Because mm -hmm. why would we go? Carol, why would we ever go if we didn't believe Mm. that there was a power above all of that evil all of those principalities of power of greed and capitalism and white supremacy and patriot all those powers if we didn't believe that there was a god mm. that could overthrow that why would we march yeah 
Um, yeah. Sandra, as you're speaking, I, I am opening Psalms 137 because when, when you say that, I, I think our captors every Sunday want us to sing a happy Zion song. And we are not brave enough to say, how could we ever sing God's song in this wasteland? Mm. You know? And so there's empire that has crafted songs for us to sing the Lord's song. And the Lord's song is, um, the Lord's song that we are writing, if we were to write a song, it would be a mockery to us because we are not singing. Um, we are singing in a wasteland and we are, yeah. Oh, I, and, I, and that's, that's exactly why I get so uh, energetic around the worship industry because you, you said it exactly correctly, Carol. It's, it's the empire and they're, and they're financed. It's a financed empire and it has algorithms <laughs> and it has formulas for writing songs and it has an entire you know, um, team of jingle writers that are making sure that those songs are catchy and in our heads all the time um, so that they can hypnotize us to continue to, to say things and sing things that it's not that they're not necessarily true, it's that they're twisted, um, yeah. they're incomplete. Yeah. Um, and so as long as they keep us singing those songs um, and as long as they keep us distracted from what else is in the Bible, um, then they'll do to us what they, what, what white supremacy has done historically in my country, which is keep people enslaved um, <laughs> and happy and quiet. Yeah. And if you have a question, then it's you. You don't have enough faith. You don't understand God. Um, you have a, 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 a rage or a, um, a brokenness in you that needs to be fixed. You know, mm. like I had a friend recently, like in the last, well, in the last couple of years, a real close friend of mine tell me that, you know, as much as I want to be a person of justice, that I had like to deal with my own sin because I was unrepentant of my um, like hatred towards white people. And I'm mm. like, I don't have any white person like I'm hating right now. I don't know what you're talking about. I said, if you want me to be quiet about white supremacy or whiteness or what that has done to my community or to the, to the space that I live in or whether or not that's godlike, I'm, I'm not going to be quiet about that. So if it makes you uncomfortable or disrupts your understanding of faith that I would say that we shouldn't only read books that are written by white men in ivory towers and air-conditioned buildings, if that upsets your sensibilities, yeah. then I don't know what to tell you, but that has nothing to do with my, that anger is not ungodly. It's, it's justice. Like if the church has moved from the West to the rest of the world, why are we still centering Western voices and you know, um, translating our books into Korean, Portuguese, and mm. every other language. Why is that still happening? Um, so I, I remember thinking that and I was like, oh, you just want me to be happy. You want me to be, to be happy with like representation, representational diversity. And I'm just, if you find me to be an angry person, then I guess that's, that's how just, that's just how you're going to see me. Yeah. And I see myself as a liberated person. So I don't know what to tell you, you know? Um, yeah. And, um, and this, you've, 
you you run i don't know if i can call it a, a campaign about um decolonize your bookshelf which i love you <laughs> you you told us to look to check out all the books that are written by white male and and ask us which women are you reading which black voices are you reading what brought you to that okay so one day i was cleaning my bookshelf <laughs> i'm going to tell you exactly what happened yeah. one day i was cleaning my bookshelf because we were going to have the wall behind me painted the, the, the yeah. wall the, the room i'm sitting in and i had to move my shelves so which means i had to take my books off my shelves and then I was like, oh, now's a good time to clean out my books. And then I started stacking them like, oh, I, I don't really read this book anymore. Or this book is, you know, and I started making observations that even though I'm a person that has always been for racial justice, that has always tried to center uh, the voices of people of color, that what I owned given my training and my context was like a lot of white authors, white male authors. And so my next thing was like, oh, those are books I can uh, so I literally, so this was me here. I was like, I can put those, I can take those with me on my next trip because I always go overseas. And then right away, like right away, I was like, why would I want to recolonize Kenya mm -hmm. or recolonize South Africa or recolonize um, Costa Rica or Colombia with the books that that are here? You know, so I, yeah. I, um, I just put them in the recycling. I just threw them out back in the recycling. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then I kept ones that I felt were like, you know, pretty profoundly shaped, you know, a couple of Venti Wright books, a couple of John Stott books, you know, a couple, because what I was not saying was we shouldn't listen to white men. What I was saying was white men have already very deeply shaped our theology, regardless of our racial background or our country of origin, because mm -hmm. what we've been given as normal theology is actually from their lens. And mm -hmm. so that's how it happened. I was actually cleaning out my bookshelf. Um, mm -hmm. And I realized that I, I needed to make, and I have too many books. I have so many books. It's not funny. I had seven bookshelves. Now I only have three. Um, mm -hmm. And so I was in the process of saying, if I had to keep, if I had to make space for all of my friends of color that are writing, that are becoming, that are getting their PhDs, that are, you know, working on their dissertations, all the wonderful practitioners that are finally publishing, if I may, want to make room for them, what do I need to get rid of? What is really necessary? Um, and I, then I did that as well with my podcast, like how, who am I listening to? Why am I listening to them? So yeah, it was a personal exercise that I felt like, oh my gosh, if I, Carol, as a Latina woman who is constantly advocating yeah. for centering women, if I have this in my bookshelf, in my background, then how much more will other people need to do this? <laughs> yeah, and you know, Sandra, a lot of people like, do not understand why it's important. Why is it important? Why is it important to listen to other diverse voices? Why is it important for Carol to write and for people to listen to Msingi talks and to our, to our context? Yes, please write. Yes, why <laughs> is it important? Because people see it and say, but God inspires all us all equally. So why are you saying, the, why are you, at, saying that and to disadvantaging them as well yeah i mean we'd have to look at history and we'd have to look at what's actually published and and you know we know for example think about a topic like leadership pick any topic leadership now you're going to read a book on christian leadership and you go to um, amazon or barnes and noble or whatever bookstores are there and you look christian leadership now look at the top 100 
Now count for me how many of those top 100 are written by women or people of color. Then you ask yourself, why, why is that important? Because we know from, like, from the disciplines of anthropology and sociology and psychology, that leadership is 90% contextual. 90% of what we do in our leadership is, is rooted in our cultural, social, racialized, class, and gendered experience. So if you're writing a book on a topic like leadership or worship or whatever, or discipleship, and you're writing from the perspective of just that one community and you normalize that, then you actually begin to um, colonize people with your thoughts on leadership. A leader must, um, leaders step up. Mm. They take their place, they step up. They, you know, you'll know a leader because they'll recognize their leadership and they'll, they'll, they'll rise to the occasion. Okay, that's only white America. I don't even know any other country where a leader would self-select. Like mm. we would get our hands slapped if we self-selected in Latin America. Leaders yeah. are chosen by their elders. Leaders are, are identified by the community. Leaders are anointed into that specific calling. They're not, they don't self-select. Yeah. So that would be just one example of like dozens, you know? Um, and so when we think about discipleship, for example, like family and um, I could say just family and parenting, like um, none of our children's curriculum like of the major um, kids curriculum um, makes sense to children that are living in the context of trauma. They're not dealing with um, like, the everyday things that the children in our community are dealing with are not addressed by the children's um, YouTube channels, you know, like the church YouTube channels or the curriculums or so. And then also they're making Jesus be, they're contextualizing Jesus and all the characters to be in their setting. So all of a sudden Mary and, um, you know, Moses and Joseph and all these people are now suburban, wealthy, American. They have choices. Like this, the way they talk about them is to make them relatable, quote unquote, to the majority white audience. But in doing so, they actually have erased their refugee status, mm. um, their, their sojourner status, you know, their biracial, multiracial status. They're, so oftentimes when I'm talking to churches and they're like, how do we, how do we teach contextual, like, um, you know, inclusive Bible stories to our kids if that's not in our curriculum? And I'm like, oh, just throw out the curriculum and actually teach the Bible. Yeah, because when you teach the stories from the Bible, you will find they are multilingual, multiracial refugees in this story. And so you can teach about a love for those who are uh, strangers and aliens by actually just looking at the Bible in its actual context. Um, Mm -hmm. So that's why it's important. It's, It's not that like white people don't have a voice that my white husband's, you know, theology doesn't matter it's that his theology is contextual yeah um theology western theology that's just called theology is contextual and therefore all of us must recognize our context and if for hundreds and hundreds of years there has been one voice at the center then we have to ask ourselves how has that impacted the experience and the potency and the efficacy of the church in the world. And if now 11% to 10% of the global Christians are located in the context that 90% of our curriculum, our podcasts, our worship music, and our books are written in, Mm. then is that justice? Is Mm. that equity? 
that 10% of the world is telling 90% of the world what they should think about God. So when I think only about the US, for example, Carol, I think this next generation of white Christians in the, in the United States of America, act, activist Christians, is not going to care about Jesus in the next five years. Why? Mm -hmm. Because their faith and their discipleship did not include a theology of suffering mm. or a practice of lament. Without mm. a theology of suffering and the practice of lament, you cannot pursue justice mm. Mm -hmm. and stay connected to God and understand God in the midst of that. The only people that can teach you that are theologians and practitioners from communal generational wealth in the area of lament and the theology of suffering. Therefore, it's not that I'm thinking you should read Latinas and you should read Kenyan writers because they, they feel sad that they're not included. That's mm. not the point. The point is your faith will not survive mm. without the voices of Kenyan, mm. Colombian, you know, <laughs> Panamanian, Theologians, your faith will not survive. The church in America had, is not thriving because we have failed to receive from anybody but ourselves. Hmm. And in making ourselves the universal donor that always gives and never receives, hmm. we actually are not healthy enough to live through this season of, 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 of the faith crisis that we're going through. Um, as we are, thank you, Sandra, so much to ruminate. I, I think I always love coming back to these conversations because there's so much depth and so much uh, wisdom. And uh, I also remember in your book, The Next Worship, you, you sharing about how when you were in Swaziland, I think, uh, when you were in Swaziland, you, you, took part in a universal singing. And so as we are winding up, I would like to ask you, because I want to do this for worship leaders and, and songwriters and people who are leading communal worship and activists and all of those, how do they start? And how, how do they start? And with that also, you can give us your closing comments. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think we start by paying attention to the work of God in our own communities, like as peoples of color, as um, global majority leaders, I think that we start by trusting that God has gifted to each of our communities in our collective and generational experience of faith, a gift to offer the world. And it's time. I just want to say that so clearly. I mean, I, I feel like I travel all over the world not to teach anything, but to say to my brothers and sisters around the world, we need you to write. Mm -hmm. We need you to write yeah. um, because there is some, there is a gift and a beauty that is needed in the church globally. Um, and we don't have, I don't have resources. Um, and so trust that God is at work and has been at work in your community and write out of that. Um, and whatever internalized things we have about imposter syndrome or not being whatever enough, um, we need to ask God to heal that in us supernaturally so that we can do the work of leading um, and writing um, and uh, 
starting our own organizations, Carol, <laughs> um, so that we can lead others. Um, so I would say that I would say start, particularly for a global majority folks and for people of color in the U.S., start by just asking God to give you um, the time and the creativity to 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 write yourself. And then I would say the other thing is to find um, mentors and leaders who are leading in that area. You know, join communities like Mazingi, join communities like Chasing Justice, join communities that Carol tells you to join um, that that are kind of, we're, we're trying to find our way. We don't know exactly what we're doing, but we know that there's a better way. <laughs> you know, we know that there's another way. And so um, join those communities and pay attention to the particular charism, the particular gift that the Holy Spirit, I think, has given to this generation. Um, and I would say that uh, those are the two things I would, I would encourage you to do. But yeah, definitely thank you for inviting me. Please follow us at Chasing Justice. Um, and, and we'd love to have people, um, you know, both follow us, but also contribute to the work that we're doing. Um, and we're just trying to find our way alongside of you, sister, you know, like trying to find ways to elevate, uh, the voices that have been underrepresented, silenced and marginalized for the healing of the whole church. Um, and it's just time. It's time. And, and with that, we are it's time for us to sing new songs. It's time for us to work together. It's time for Amen. us to sing together. And so thank you so much, Sandra, for coming. Much, much love to you. Thank you, sister. Much love to you as well. All right. Bye. Bye. If you've been inspired, challenged, and or enjoyed this conversation and would like to contribute to this and catch up with more of such, Remember to follow us on social media at Musingi Trust. Share this podcast with your friends and family. And also consider making a donation to support the production of this podcast. Donations can be made through PayPal, msingikenya at gmail.com, Patreon at msingikenya, or through M-Pesa, plus 254-792-176-030. Kwaherini, and thank you for joining us.